Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every episode of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor, Romana and K9 as they continue their adventure in eSpace, this time coming face to fang with a creature from Mish in State of Decay. As usual, we'll be discussing the Doctor, companions and the villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story and on any other story that we discuss on the show. So to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, as per usual, Paddington will go over to you first for the story recap, please. Thank you very much. Part 1. In a castle overlooking a rustic village, the ruling elite prepare for an event called the Time of Selection. The three rulers, Zargo, Alcon and Camilla, all of whom are pale, red-eyed individuals, debate as to what the most important criteria are for their selections, in order to appease their master, the Great One. They give their orders to their guard captain, Hybris, who departs to follow their instructions. Later, in a tavern in the village, Hybris and his men enter to find a line of candidates waiting for them, having been selected by the village headman, Ivo. Hybris goes through the candidates, but selects Ivo's son, Carl, who is sitting down amongst those not chosen. Carl attempts to resist, pleading with Habris not to follow his orders, but he is knocked down and captured when he attempts to flee. Habris guiltily says he must follow his orders before departing with the selected candidates. Ivo dismisses those not selected and then consoles his wife. Meanwhile, on the TARDIS, the Doctor and Romana continue their search for a way out of e-space. Romana points out that there doesn't appear to be a lot of planets in the areas that they have scanned so far, but the Doctor says that something will turn up. K9 alerts them then to the location of a nearby habitable planet. He says there is evidence of high technology, but the local populace seem to be of a less advanced nature. They land on the planet and the Doctor and Romana go out to view their surroundings. In the distance, they see the village and the castle. Romana says that there doesn't appear to be any evidence of the advanced technology K-9 spoke of. The Doctor suggests taking a further look around and tells K-9 to stay behind to guard the TARDIS whilst he tries to locate another CVE. Unbeknownst to the Doctor, he is being listened to by Adric, who stowed away down the TARDIS. Dr. Romana then make their way through the woods and encounter a startled villager who flees from them in terror. Back in the village, Ivo gives out to Habris over the fact that the villagers are not receiving sufficient food in order for them to do their work. He says that they are too weak and as a result their harvests have been poor. Suddenly they are interrupted by the arrival of the doctor and Romana and he bows to them in a state of shock before asking them where they came from. Habris stands to attention and asks them what their command is, all of which confuses the two time lords. The doctor presses on and asks if there are any scientists in the village, but when Ivo expresses confusion at the word, he uses medieval terminology, which Ivo recognises, and he replies that such practices are forbidden. Habris tells him that he must go, leaving the Time Lords to ask about their other settlements in the area, but Ivo says that this is the only settlement. The doctor asks who lives in the castle, and Ivo, thinking that he is being tested, says that he is a loyal servant of the Lords and has served them faithfully so that they will protect the village from the wasting. Doctor seems to recognise the term and presses Ivo for more information, but he says that he has work to do and they leave. After they go, Ivo pulls a communication device from out of a hiding place and contacts someone named Kalmar, telling them about the strange visitors and their search for scientists. Back on the TARDIS, Adric emerges from his hiding place and is confronted by K9, who demands to know what he is doing there. Adric says that he stowed away so that he could see the universe and then asks where the Doctor is. K9 says that they have gone to look for help in getting out of e-space. Adric says he will go and find them, but when K9 tries to stop him, he tricks the robot dog into letting him go by saying that as a stowaway, he shouldn't be on the TARDIS at all. 
Meanwhile, the Doctor and Romana make their way through the woods in search of another village when they are suddenly surrounded by a group of hooded figures. In the castle, Habers reports the presence of the Doctor and Romana to the Lords, and they angrily refuse his statement that they are also Lords. Zargo and Camilla order him to send out more patrols to find them before the rebels in the area do. However, Alcon says that there will be no need of the patrols, and he will instead use his bats, which he calls his servants, to find them. In the woods, the Doctor and Romana are led to an underground cavern, where they find more men attending to antiquated computers and bits of machinery. One of them, Kalmar, asks the Doctor if he is a scientist, after someone mentions that he is called the Doctor, but another of his men, Tarek, instead demands to know who they are and where they come from. The Doctor ignores the demand, and instead goes to check one of the computers that Kalmar was attending to. Tarek says that the machines are useless as they have been unable to provide them with weapons with which to fight the lords, and Romana asks how long they have been in power. Kalmar says that they have ruled from the castle for at least a thousand years. The doctor says that according to Ivo, without the lords they would be doomed to face the wasting, and then asks what it is, but Kalmar stops Tarek before he can explain. Meanwhile, Adric arrives at the tavern in the village and attempts to steal some food, but he is stopped by Ivo's wife Marta. Adric asks if she has seen the Doctor and Romana, and she says that they went to the castle. Ivor returns and tells Adric to get out, but Marta says it is too dangerous to send him out at that late hour. Ivor reluctantly agrees, and Marta gives Adric some of Carl's old clothes before letting him get some food. Back in the underground cavern, Kalmar and another rebel, Veros, tell the Doctor and Romana about how they fled from the Lords and have been hiding in secret ever since. They say that all forms of science and education are outlawed, and the people only exist to work in the fields for the lords. They briefly mention the time of selection, saying that those chosen are picked to work in the castle. The doctor then announces that he's managed to get one of the computers properly working, after giving it a bit of TLC, and Romana reads the screen, saying that it is a crew manifest of an exploration vessel from Earth called the Hydrax. Romana says the ship must have come through the CVE as well, before reading out the crew's names of Captain Miles Sharkey, Nav Officer Laura McMillan, and Science Officer Anthony O'Connor. She brings up their pictures, and Tarek, who was previously one of the castle's guards, says that they are Zargo, Camilla, and Alcon. The doctor says that he and Romana should go and meet them, and Kalmar agrees, telling an objecting Varos that they are free to go. Whilst they are making their way through the woods, they are suddenly swarmed by bats, one of which bites the doctor. The two time lords flee as the sky fills with more and more bats. Part 2 Romana points out that the bats seem to be flocking away in the direction of the castle. Suddenly Habris and his men appear and tell them that they have been summoned to meet the lords. They are brought to the castle and they are met by Zargo and Camilla. They ask why the time lords are there, saying that they know that they are travellers from space. They offer them something to eat and drink and the doctor comments on their luxurious surroundings, comparing them to the conditions that the villagers live under. He comments on the rebel forces and Camilla says that they do not appreciate what she, Zargo and Alcon do for them. Romana then nicks her hand when she breaks her glass during a shared toast with the Doctor. Camilla asks to see the wound, but Romana says that she is fine before joining the Doctor in his conversation with Zargo about how each group seemed to be stranded in e-space. Meanwhile, in the tavern, Marta explains the time of selection to Adric and the status quo between the villagers and the lords. Adric says that they should stand up to the lords, but an irate Ivo says that all opposition to them has been crushed so far. Suddenly Habers and his men arrive and say that there is another selection to be made, this time overseen by Alcon. Alcon inspects the villagers and is drawn to Adric when he notices his mental defence. Alcon orders Adric to follow him, but the young boy asks why he should obey him. 
Alcon smiles as he promises that Adric will have wealth and power over the entire planet. Back in the castle, the Doctor and Romana comment that the evolutionary track on the planet seems to be going backwards, with the villagers becoming more and more primitive with each generation. He says that there is some force at play on the planet, and the rebels believe the Lords to be responsible for it. Zyro says that the rebels have overestimated them, and that they are simply rulers by necessity. He says that the ship of state must have a pilot, and Camilla tells him to stop talking, but the Doctor has already picked up on his phrasing. He tells him about viewing the Hydrax's manifest, and Zargo says that it is impossible, as the records were meant to have been destroyed. Camilla again tells him to be silent, but they are interrupted by Habris, who says that Alcon has summoned them as the time of arising is at hand. Zargo and Camilla depart, telling the two Time Lords to stay in the throne room. After they go, the Doctor and Romana deduce that the Lords are the descendants of the crew of the Hydrax, whose names have been distorted throughout the generations. The Doctor also says that the castle is actually the Hydrax and that the throne room is the bridge. He starts to look around for an inspection hatch and Romana points out that it is under Camilla's throne. The Doctor then enters the hatch and calls Romana on after him. Down in the lower catacombs, Alcon shows an entrance adric to Zargo and Camilla and tells him that he will make a good addition to their ranks. However, they say that the sacrifices were to be selected from the villagers and point out his possible connection to the Doctor and Romana. Alcon says that the villagers will never be suitable candidates, as the necessary traits have been bred out of them through the generations. Zargo insists that the Doctor and the others are too dangerous to deal with, and says that they should be killed and fed to the Great One. However, Camilla supports Alcon and says that they must follow the Great One's orders and grow their numbers. In the Rebel base, Kalmar tells everyone that the Doctor and Romana have been captured. Tarek and Varos insist on launching a rescue attempt, saying that the Time Lords are their best hope at defeating the Lords. However, Kalmar says that they should wait and bide their time until they are properly prepared to take on the Lords. Tarek then suggests sneaking in by himself, citing his previous experiences as a guard in the castle. He says he will find them and bring them back with the knowledge on how to defeat the Lords. Back in the castle, the Doctor and Romana's disappearance is discovered and Zargo demands that Habris find them on pain of death. After Habris leaves, Camilla notices the open hatch and says the Doctor is more dangerous than they first thought. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Romana discover a secondary flight deck on the ship, and the Doctor says it is designed to separate from the main craft for planetary exploration. He notices that there is still some power in the fuel cells, and Romana says that they could pilot it away. The Doctor tells her to be quiet as he hears a slow thumping sound echoing throughout the ship. He leads her further into the bowels of the ship, and says that there is a creature, which is the source of the thumping sound, nesting nearby somewhere under the castle, and is using it as a feeding ground. He turns on a light source, and a startled Romana sees dozens of mummified corpses in bunks lining the walls. The Doctor notices pipes from each of the bunks, and he follows them to the fuel hatches, which he opens to see that they are full of blood. They continue down to the engines of the ship, and climb through the exhaust ports into an enormous cavern. The thumping sound grows louder, and the Doctor says that it is the creature's heartbeat. Romana spots pipes carrying the blood leading away from the ship, and they follow them. Suddenly, the Doctor stops short and begins to talk about vampire lore, unintentionally frightening Romana, who asks where they are. Alcon suddenly appears and says that they are in the place of resting before welcoming them to his domain. Part 3. The Doctor asks if there is a possibility of a guided tour, but Alcon warns him to be more respectful of his surroundings. He asks the Doctor and Romana to join him and the others as lords so they can go back to the real space universe and conquer it. Romana asks if he knows how to get out of e-space, and Alcon says that the Great One will show them the way out, as he is the one who brought them in. 
The Doctor then reveals that Alcon is actually O'Connor and not his descendant. Alcon says that he was the first one that the Great One reached out to and he gave them all unending life in return for their feeding of him. Romana quietly suggests that they play along with Alcon's demands until they get the information on how to escape eSpace, but the Doctor says it is too dangerous. Alcon says that they should join him as Adric did, surprising them to the youth's presence on the planet. They refuse and Alcon says that they will either serve the Great One or be fed to him. The Doctor says that he will instead destroy the Great One and tells Romana to run. However, before he can follow, Alcon uses his mental abilities to stop him and attempts to bend him to his will. He is distracted when Romana hurls a stalagmite at him, but he easily batters it aside. Doctor tells Romana to cover her eyes and he tells Alcon that his tricks won't work on them due to their Time Lord genealogy. Alcon is stunned at this revelation and calls them the ancient enemies as they flee, but they are stopped by the arrival of Zargo and Camilla. They tell the Doctor and Romana that they will drain them of their blood, but Alcon suddenly tells everyone to be quiet as the Great One begins to commune with him. Alcon then announces that the Great One has decreed that they will be fed to him at the time of his arising. They lead the Doctor and Romana back up to the main castle and hand them over to a group of guards who lead them away. Unbeknownst to them, this is all being observed by Tarek, who has managed to sneak into the castle and steal a guard's uniform. He watches as Zargo and Camilla go into their private chamber, leaving him to plan his next steps. In their chambers, Zargo expresses his concern that Alcon is withholding his abilities that he was meant to share with them, but Camilla says that they will all be made equal when the Great One arises. However, Zargo says that he is still afraid as the Doctor's presence could disrupt everything. In their cell, the Doctor tells Romana about a story of his old master, Campol Rinpoche, once told him about a race of giant vampires. He says that they were so powerful, just one of them could suck the life out of an entire planet. He says the Time Lords fought them in a long and bloody war, which caused the Time Lords' current pacifism. He says that according to the story, all but one of the vampires were destroyed, and the survivor escaped to parts unknown, which Romana says could have been E-Space. Meanwhile, outside the cell, Tarek arrives, telling the guard on duty that he's been sent to relieve him. The guard recognises him, and Tarek attacks him. Inside the cell, Romana asks when the legend was supposed to have taken place, and the doctor says that it happened in the days of Rassilon's youth. She says that during her tenure in the Bureau of Ancient Records on the Citadel, she recalls seeing an entry about copies of the book The Record of Rassilon being installed on Type 40 TARDISes. The doctor smiles at this, telling her that she is wonderful, and she graciously accepts the compliment. The doctor then signals for the guard watching them to come near him, and when he does, he knocks him out. He tells Romana they need to escape, but he is suddenly hit by the door as Tarek bursts in, having overcome the guard outside. He leads Romana and the stunned doctor away. When they reach the exit, the doctor tells Tarek to go to Kalmar and tell him to prepare for an attack on the castle, but not to move until he gives the signal. Romana then reminds the doctor about Adric, and the doctor asks Tarek where he could be. Tarek says that he will be most likely in the inner sanctum, and the doctor asks to be taken there, but Romana says that she will go as the doctor needs to get the information from the TARDIS. In the rebel base, Kalmar uses one of the machines to scan the surrounding countryside, and Vera says that he sees someone moving on the screen. He prepares to ambush whoever it is, but sees that it is Ivo, and Kalmar tells him to come in. He angrily gives out to Ivo for not following their communication protocols, but Ivo angrily says that none of that matters now as Carl is dead, having been fed upon by the lords. He calls Kalmar and the others cowards, but then says that something will be happening at the castle that night. He says that he intends to attack the castle with his own followers, again chastising Kalmar when he says that they should wait until they are properly prepared. He warns Kalmar that if his attack fails, then he should expect the Lords to attack the rebel base next.
The Doctor arrives back at the TARDIS, where K-9 attempts to tell him about Adric, but the Doctor says that he already knows. He tells K-9 that he needs his help in recovering the record of Rassilon from the Data Core. However, after much searching, K-9 says that he can find no reference to the book, nor anything to do with vampires. K-9 reminds the despondent Doctor that there could be a hard copy of the book, and the Doctor rushes to his library. He comes back with a trolley of data cards and finds the book. He enters it into the console reader and finds the entry about the world of the vampires. It confirms that the king of the vampires had somehow managed to escape the last battle that destroyed the rest of his race. He reads a decree made by Rassilon saying that any Time Lord that found the king vampire had to destroy it, sacrificing themselves if necessary. K9 asks how the vampires can be killed, and the doctor finds an entry that says that energy weapons were useless as the vampires merely absorbed the energy. He says that Rassler ordered the construction of attack fighters that could fire steel bolts and strike the vampires in their only vulnerable spot, their heart. In the castle, Tarek brings Romana at knife point to the entrance to the inner sanctum and tells the guard that Zargo wants to see her. The guard says that he has his orders not to let anyone in, but Tarek says that he has his own orders. He takes the passkey from the guard, but he uses it wrong, but Romana corrects him. The guard becomes suspicious, but Romana distracts him long enough for Tarek to knock him out. They then make their way into the inner sanctum and see Zargo and Camilla sleeping. Tarek says that they should kill them now, but Romana says that they don't have any weapons that can harm them according to vampire lore. They search around for Adric and find him unconscious on a nearby bed, wearing similar clothes to Zargo and Camilla. Romana tries to wake him up and he begins to groggily come around. He says he vaguely remembers what Alcon said about the arising ceremony, but Romana says that they need to get out of the room. However, they are confronted by Zargo and Camilla, and Tarek attacks them. Zargo picks him up and hurls him into a wall, and he and Camilla then go to feed on him. However, they see that he is dead, and Camilla reminds Zargo that they cannot feed on dead bodies. They advance on Romana and Adric, who throws Tarek's knife into Zargo. However, he easily removes it, and they see that there is no blood on it. The two vampire lords then advance on their prey. Part 4 Alcon arrives and orders Zargo and Camilla to leave them alone, saying that Adric will soon be one of them and Romana will be fed to the Great One. He has the prisoners put in chains and says that they must all be made ready for the Great One's arising, which will take place that night. The trio go into a state of rapture at the concept of being let loose into real space to feed on the countless worlds there. Meanwhile, on the TARDIS, the Doctor brainstorms on how to convince the rebels to follow him in an attack on the castle. He decides to pilot the TARDIS into their base, and K9 reassures him that due to the relatively small nature of e-space in comparison to real space, the short journey should be no problem. He arrives and interrupts an argument between Varos and Kalmar about the course of action to take in the wake of Ivo's plans to attack the castle. The Doctor then rallies them to his cause by giving a paraphrased version of Henry V's Crispin Day speech and say that they should join Ivo's forces. However, Kalmar is sceptical of the Doctor's claims about the King Vampire, and the Doctor says that if he had the right equipment, he could prove it. Kalmar mentions the scanner he got to work earlier, and the Doctor uses it to show them the giant humanoid bat-like figure of the King Vampire in the caverns below the castle. Convinced of the truth, Kalmar tells Varos to contact Ivo. Back in the castle, Adric berates Romana for her failure to rescue him, and states his belief that the Doctor will save himself and even the TARDIS. Romana is outraged at this and begins to lambast him for stowing away the TARDIS in the first place, but he ignores her and says that he is going to take Alcon's offer of power and immortality. The lords arrive and Romana tries to get Adric to see sense, but he says that he has lost enough of his family due to the Time Lords already. Alcon then orders them to be taken away to be prepared for their respective ceremonies. In the rebel base, the Doctor goes over an attack plan with the rebels and the recently arrived Ivo. 
Doctor says that the biggest problem will be dealing with the Great One, as they must fashion a weapon big enough to kill him. I would suggest sharpening a tree trunk, but the Doctor says that he would need to find something to fire it and generate enough force in order to pierce the King Vampire's heart. I would then suggest building a catapult, and the Doctor suddenly has a brainwave. He tells the leaders to gather their best men who will be placed under the command of K-9 in order to launch a commando raid on the castle. Despite their scepticism, they follow his orders and make their way to the castle. Once there, K-9 puts their doubts at ease as his nose laser helps dispatch the guards that try to prevent them from gaining access to the throne room. However, they see that it is abandoned and the doctor says that the arising ceremony must have begun already. He says that he is pushing the next part of his plan to action and tells them to defend the throne room until K-9 signals for them to leave. I will protest at having to follow the robot dog's orders, but the doctor insists that he do as he is told and only leave when K-9 says so. He then tells them to rendezvous at the exterior entrance to the cave system and to rescue Adric or Romana if they see them. In the underground cavern, the lords, followed by Adric, a few guards and a hypnotised Romana, arrive to commence the ceremony. Adric whispers to Romana about a plan that he has, but they are interrupted by the arrival of Habris, who informs the lords about the attack on the castle. He begs Alcon to send his bats to aid them, but Alcon refuses, saying that he is in need of them. Haber says that he and his men will die, but Alcon hypnotizes him, saying that that is the point of guards. Haber sleeps in a trance, and Alcon reassures Zargo and Camilla that nothing can stop them. Haber goes back to the throne room, where his men are locked in combat with the rebels. He is confronted by Ivo, who vows vengeance on him for his son. Meanwhile, the doctor has gone through the maintenance hatch again, and arrives in the launch bay for the Hydrax's scout ships. Down in the cavern, Romana is laid out on a sacrificial altar. As Alcon calls for the ceremony to start, Adric rushes at him with a knife, but he is held in place by Alcon's gaze, who orders Adric to be taken away. He then goes back to the ceremony and summons his bats into the caves so that they can feed on Romana. Back in the Hydrax, the Doctor is in the third scout ship as the other two of the ship's systems were too degraded. He activates the flight controls and sets it on a predetermined course. K9 detects the ship's engines and orders the rebels to flee the castle. Down in the cavern, the ceremony is interrupted by the rumble of the engines, and the bats flee from Romana's body. She comes out of her trance, and Adric helps her off the altar, seeing that they need to get out of there whilst Alcon and the others are distracted. They are joined by the Doctor, who climbed out of the Hydrax's exhaust port. Suddenly, a large clawed hand bursts up from the cavern floor, and Alcon rejoices as he says the Great One is rising. The Doctor tells Romana and Adric not to panic, as he explains what he did with the scout ship. They watch as it reaches its apex and then falls back to the surface, where its nose cone pierces the cavern roof and plunges into the Great One's heart, killing him. The lords turn to attack the Doctor, but before they can harm him, they begin to rapidly age now that their master is dead, and they crumble to dust. The Doctor is again joined by Romana and Adric, who apologises for his earlier actions and explains that it was all a ruse that he could rescue Romana. Romana jokingly uses his earlier words against him, highlighting his failure to save her. They are then joined by K-9 and the others, who ask about the Vampire King and their lords, and the Doctor explains what he did with the scout ship. The rebels thank the Doctor for his aid, and Ivo offers an apology to K-9 for his earlier comments. They then all make their way back to the rebel base, where the Doctor manages to fix some of the equipment that would allow Kalmar and the remaining scientists to get their people back on the path to progress. He says that one day they will hopefully be able to get back to Earth, after their ancestors were brought into e-space on the Hydrax. Doctor then bids the rebels farewell before telling a protesting Adric as they climb into the TARDIS that they're going to bring him back to the Starliner. End of the story.
I'm feeling a bit peckish. I'm going to get a bite and we will put it over to the trivia spot. <laughs> okay, so the air date for State of Decay is the 22nd of November to the 13th of December 1980. The writer is Terence Dix. Mm. But while since we've seen Terence's work, um, this is writing credit 5 of 6 for Terence, though obviously he was scripted her for a long time and he did a lot of novelizations. We previously saw his writing work in The War Games, Robot, The Brain of Morbius, and Horror of Fang Rock. We'll see his work for a final time in The Five Doctors. The director for the story is Peter Moffat. This is the first of six directing credits for Peter. We'll see his work again in The Visitation, Mordred Undead, The Five Doctors, The Twin Dilemma, and The Two Doctors. Peter passed away in 2007. Terence actually wrote this script three years earlier. So... The story is based off of that older script. Mm. And when Peter Moffat saw this original script, he loved it, which is exactly what John Nathan Turner wanted. However, when Peter received um, Christopher Bidmead's adapted form of the script, because obviously three years and then I had to brought up to speed, he found it completely different. It no longer had the gothic atmosphere that he was drawn to in the original. And it just wasn't what he wanted. And so he told John Nathan Turner that he no longer wanted to direct it. Because either I direct the version you originally presented me with or do nothing. And so in order to have Peter do the job, the original story was reinstated. Though obviously updated for the characters or whatever, but the story is mm-hmm. fundamentally the same. Both Terrence and Peter continued to be at odds with Christopher Bidmead. Um, they wanted to emphasize the sort of hammer horror aspect, which would have been very prevalent in like the Hinchcliffe era. Mm-hmm. whereas Christopher Bidmead thought it was against the hard science fiction approach that he was trying to go for as script editor. Quick question. Hmm. Three years prior, would that have been Leela? Yeah. 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 That, would, that, would, that would have been interesting to see. Yeah. So, in the story, the peasants give a weird, funny salute to their lords. Um, they cover their eyes, their ears, and their mouth. Um, this is in reference to the three wise monkeys. So, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Which, given the context of the story, is actually quite interesting. I think. Mm-hmm. The Time Lord Hermit, who the doctor, who told the doctor about the great vampire, you say it was Campo from Potia. I, I don't think Campo from Potia actually gets mentioned. I think that's an assumption on your part. That's the same guy. Well, ignore because he he said an old hermit on the on the South Mountains of Gallifrey, which is what he told Joe in the time monster. Yeah. So I'm assu- you're assuming it's the same person. Yeah. Um, originally, okay, it's my, it's my head cannon. <laughs> originally, that was meant to be an old woman, which is why I bring ah. it up. Okay. So it wasn't originally meant to be Camper and All right. Fair enough. Um, there's a couple of subplots um, originally in the script involving the townsfolk wandering around at night in the forest like zombies. Um, rebellious citizens being found with bat like bite marks on their necks and stuff like that so playing up more of the vampire element I suppose mm. so we've talked from previous episodes around how for a lot of this season Tom Baker was actually quite sick he'd returned from Australia and was quite ill according to John Nathan Turner Tom's illness was at its worst during this shoot and Tom refused to go see a doctor that sounds so familiar to so many people I know. Mm-hmm. He claimed that, or 
Jonathan Turner claimed that it's clear which scenes were shot in the first recording session and which in the second based on how Tom looks. This is the first story where Tom actually had to have his hair curled, let's put his hair in rollers, because his hair lost his curl because he was going through such dramatic weight loss from being sick. And apparently his hair would straighten out like every 10 minutes. He did finally seek medical advice and he was found to have a metabolic disorder that once diagnosed seemed to put him back on the road to recovery. But like given the fact that like this is now like this is the fourth story of this season, though it was filmed a bit earlier. Um that's crazy. And like and we've commented on it that like in previous stories where like he actually looks so ill. Mm. Um and the fact that he was refusing to go to a doctor is just crazy. Peter Moffat didn't really find Tom to be that cooperative with him, I suppose you'll say. He found Tom to be argumentative and felt that Tom wanted to direct the production himself, which is a a feeling we've gotten from a lot of directors as we've been going through. Eventually, Peter took Tom for a drink and told him that while he was open to suggestions from actors, he was the director and Tom was the actor and he should bear that in mind. And apparently, as we've seen with sort of other instances with Tom sort of acting out, when people are direct with him and sort of whatever, he tends to be a bit more cooperative and that was the case here as well. In terms of Adric, Terence really struggled to find a sort of raison d'etre, as you would, for Adric, and ultimately decided to play upon the character's duplicitous tendencies by making the viewers think that he had actually sided with the villain. That was Terence who did that, because he didn't really know what to do with Adric. However, Jonathan Turney, Jonathan Turner, Jonathan Turner and Christopher Bidmead later decided to de-emphasize the more overly negative and sort of malicious aspects of Adric's personality. Mm. And so this element of the scripts was watered down a lot. Again, we'll talk about it when we talk about Adric, but he comes across odd. Yeah. And this one. Interesting thing about Orkham. So oftentimes when I'm going through the trivia, they'll often say like about other actors who were considered for the role of certain people and usually i don't mention it because mm. it would go on for long however Alcon, there was two actors that you and i both love that were considered for that role those actors being ian mckellen and patrick stewart Ooh, well that would have been interesting yeah there was a host of other people considered and you can go on to the tardis fandom wiki if you want to look them all up but i found it funny that like both ian and patrick were considered for the same role mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Because they did eventually get Ian for a role. Yeah, that and was in the one with the snowman. The snowman, yeah, called yeah. the snowman. Yeah. And so, like, I have a group that I call Shakespeare, the Shakespearean trio, which is the two of them and Derek J- uh, Jacoby. And Patrick's the only one so far that I that hasn't appeared in Doctor Who. Yeah, and I don't know if he will. Um, yeah, Patrick is really sort of starting to step away from. Mm-hmm. acting stuff since Picard is finished so yeah we'll see maybe um, a voice role or something yeah we've also spoken throughout the season about Tom and Lala and mm-hmm. their relationship um at this point they weren't on speaking terms um after Lala rebuffed Tom's attempts to rekindle their romance a couple of weeks earlier we talked about that when we talked mm-hmm. about the season opener 
Peter Moffat recalled asking Tom at one point if he could help Bella Ward down in the engine room pipe scene. Mm-hmm. And Tom re- retorted, why is she a bloody cripple? <laughs> I'm going to say sadly, maybe fortunately for them, we'll see. They were united in one thing, which was their dislike for Matthew Waterhouse. Interesting, following filming of this story, they rekindled their romance and then went on to announce their engagement. That, like, hearing their relationship described through Doctor Who trivia points, and I know you've read mm. um, the behind-the-scenes book, um, Space Down the Perkow, um, which obviously goes into a bit more detail, I'm sure, but I'm like, this this is like the worst relationship ever. I <laughs> No I offense, love... I know they're real people, mm. but like, oh my god. Oh, it's, yeah, it's really fucked up also i love the way that you have to say the book title really fast so you wouldn't start devolving into giggles uh, um but yeah, i know it actually because i was looking it up and they were when did you say the air date for this was again december uh, 1980 yeah they so they actually got married in december of 1980 yeah. so I, I didn't know how far back their engagement was because we will talk about it more in the our character discussion, but yeah, like again, like I've heard, I've read just the one source, which is the book space on the for a cow, um, talking of uh, the various backstage impressions of Matthew Waterhouse. Mm. So we might um, have more uh, <laughs> as that comes along. Yeah, um, I was trying to see if the. TARDIS fandom wiki stated the recording dates but they don't. They do like production order but they don't give mm-hmm. production dates. Cool. Before we go into our cast, one, one last call out in regards to Lala Ward and Matthew Waterhouse. They both named this as their favourite story. Mm. So it'll be interesting when we get to our scores to see if we agree. Let's go on to our cast. So as Habers, we have Ian Rattray. Rattray? Mm, not quite sure. Uh, this is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Ian. His non-Who credits include Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson, Jenny's War, and Wish Me Luck. Ian actually kept his Doctor Who State of Decay script, and so the producers for the DVD consulted him about the script because he actually still had his original script, which is really oh, cool. That's, that's cool. Calmar is played by Arthur Hewlett. This is the first of two appearances for Arthur. We'll see his work again in Terror of the Verboids. His non who credits include Calling Bulldog Drummond, Quartermass in the Pit, No Hiding Place, The Newcomers, and Blake Seven. Arthur passed away back in 1997. Tarek is played by Fane Bettany. is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Fane. His non who credits include The Talisman, Hamlet, and North Sea Hijack. Yes, what you're thinking is correct. Fane was the father of actor Paul Bettany. That's cool. Fane passed away Bettany. in 2015. Veros is played by Stacey Davis. This is the second and final appearance for Stacey. We previously saw him as Private Perkins in The Invasion. His non-who credits include Zed Cars, No Hiding Place, The O'Needle Line, and London's Burning. Stacey passed away in 2019. Ivo is played by Clinton Grain. This is the first of two appearances for Clinton. We'll see him again in The Two Doctors. His non-who appearances include Goodbye Mr. Chips, Scotch on the Rocks, and Department S. Clinton also passed away in 2019. 
Alcon went on to be played by Emrys James. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Emrys. His non-Who credits include Dragon Slayer, The Rise and Fall of Cesar Barreto, The Scarlet and the Black, and The Diary of Anne Frank. Emrys passed away in 1989. Camilla is played by Rachel Davies. Only Doctor Who acting credit for Rachel. Her non-Who credits include Band of Gold, The Last Detective, Midsummer Murders, and The Chase. Zargo is played by William Lindsay. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit for William. His Don Who credits include Colditz, Angels, Blake Seven, and Life Force. William passed away in 1986. Just before you get into the final person, mm. uh, I actually recently watched The Scarlet and the Black, or I mm. watched uh, a bit of it. It's it's really cool. Um, I didn't know about this. There's a there's a statue of a priest in Killarney the, mm. near the High Street, and it's a statue of a guy called Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty who was actually a cleric in the Vatican and during World War II. And he was essentially like the Oscar Schindler in Rome at the time. He had this huge network of keeping Jews and Allied soldiers safe in the Vatican while the Gestapo were trying to hunt him down. Oh, it's actually really cool. Yeah, he, uh, in the movie, Gregory Peck plays uh, Hugh O'Flaherty and Christopher Plummer plays the Gestapo officer trying to find him. Oh, wow. So last week we talked about Matthew Waterhouse briefly. Um, he played the role of Adric. Obviously, Adric is in this story as well, and he's going to be in the next one. Spoiler alert. So let's talk a bit more about Matthew. So Matthew was born in Hartford in December of 1961, which means we've imagined that this story aired December 1980. He would have been 18 when he was filming and he turned 19 when this is airing. He began his career as a clerk in the BBC News Department before securing a role in the television drama to serve them all my days in early 1980. Shortly after that, he auditioned for and won the role of Adric. He was a confirmed Doctor Who fan and he had had at least one letter printed in Doctor Who Weekly before he took up the role. Which reminds me of another confirmed Doctor Who fan who had letters and things published before he got a role Mm -hmm. in Doctor Who. Mm Mm-hmm. Matthew was the youngest actor to play a companion, and he actually remains the youngest male actor to have done so to this day. State of Decay was the first serial that Matthew filmed, so State of Decay was actually filmed before Full Circle. Matthew is openly gay, and is believed to be the first non-heterosexual actor on Doctor Who to have been open about his sexuality while on the series. Which is very interesting. I didn't know that... I didn't know... He was open while he was filming. Mm. In 2010, Matthew joined a growing number of Doctor Who actors in publishing an autobiography. In his book, called Blue Box Boy, he writes candidly about his experiences making Doctor Who. In it, he claims that Tom Baker had a horrible attitude and that he was shocked that someone he admired could be this way. To give the other side of that experience, according to Lala Ward, Matthew was rude to costume designer Amy Roberts because she wouldn't let him go to the canteen in his costume, prompting Lala to have to intervene. When Lala, or pardon, when Matthew went to introduce himself to Tom Baker in the pub, apparently he waited for him to come over. Two hours passed before Matthew finally went over to him, and apparently he was told to piss off. According to Peter Moffat, Matthew had no knowledge of camera technique at all, and he made the fatal mistake of advising Tom on how to say a line. Tom nearly hit him and Peter had to tell Michael off. This sounds like it was an absolutely terrible experience. 
Yeah, because like I had heard, so I I I'd heard a lot of this. So I'd heard about how he went up to Tom and Tom told him to piss off. I didn't know about the attempted, you know, taking a swing at him. Uh, and I heard heard about, uh, probably you know, giving advice to Tom and this kind of stuff. And the other sources that I read were basically that he he kind of let the experience go to his. No, this is one source mm. saying that he had let the he had let the experience go to his head a bit. You know, like I'm on Doctor Who, I'm this year. So there was a bit of cock of the walk about him. Mm. But at the same time, one of the other aspects of it is that, as you kind of pointed out, he's an 18 year old kid landing a role in one of the biggest series on British television at the time. And you can do stupid stuff in that sort of scenario. Yeah. It doesn't give um, someone the right to take a swing at you. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, playing devil's advocate a bit you know mm. i wasn't present for these events we weren't even born when this happened nope. but i do wonder if the fact that tom was ill tom and lala mm. weren't getting on mm-hmm. if the idea of this young kid coming in a doctor who fan maybe overzealous very green around the ears you know doesn't know how cameras really work you know maybe like not hitting his mark that much, that type of thing. I wonder if it was just a culmination oh, of yeah. things. Like, I wonder had Tom not been ill, had him and Lala been in a better place together, would it have been a different experience with Matthew where they would have taken them under, taken him under their wing or something like that? Now, maybe he still would have been super fucking annoying, but I mm. wonder if it would have been as bad. Like, because yeah. in terms of like, the not knowing camera technique, I still remember the story that Gates McFadden tells because it's absolutely fucking hilarious. Because Gates was a stage performer, for the most mm. part, before she got her role in Star Trek. And so it got so bad during season one of filming Star Trek Generation, they had to put sandbags down to get her to stop on her mark, and she'd often just walk over them. So used to being on stage and being able to sort of yeah. free flow around the room. So when they were saying that like, you know, Matthew didn't have good knowledge of camera technique, I, I'm just, I, I just keep being reminded of that story that Gates tells about how like she was so shocking at acting for camera that like it drove people absolutely bananas. After leaving Doctor Who, Matthew went on to do some work on stage. Um, he also did a couple of other performances, which I mentioned last week. Big Finish um, did reach out to him several times, um, mm. offering Matthew a role, and he turned them down for years, um, not wanting to do it. It wasn't because like he had any resentment against the company or anything like that. He had nothing against Big Finish personally. But he felt he couldn't capture the youthful essence of a 15-year-old Adric at his age. However, later he went on to do some recording of Target audiobooks. And so once he had a couple of those under his belt and he felt a bit more comfortable, he you know, was like, okay, maybe I can play Adric in a sort of audio drama style. And so he's now gone and done a number of titles with Big Finish as Adric. Hmm. And thus endeth the trivia. Awesome. Thank you, as always, for the very interesting trivia insights. Um, 
So now we're going to move on to the character discussion. So we've got a bit to get through this week. Uh, as always, we have the Doctor. Uh, then we have the companions of Romana. A bit more discussion about K9, because he's a bit more prevalent in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Adric again, uh, who is now a companion. Uh, we have... Now, we have a group of prominent characters. Uh, I put down Kalmar, Tarek, Veros, and Ivo. Habris is, again straddling the fence the same way as Dexter um, was last week, for me anyway. And then we have the unholy trio of Zargo, Camillo and Alcon hmm. as villains. Uh, what are your thoughts on Habris just before we actually discuss? I put him in prominent character, but he's like the prominent character just before we go into villains, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. same as Dexter's. Well, yep. Dexter was originally going to be that, but then we had a very interesting discussion about the Deciders. Yeah, right, I didn't see Dexter the same way you did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. So, you did the socials, so lead us off about the Doctor. Okay, so, first of all, I, I do want to say that, yes, what I said in trivia is true. It is very clear that Tom is not well. Just looking at him. Mm-hmm. It's very clear. Separate from that though. This is one of those stories where for me. The doctor knows everything. And this is that he reacts to everything. Just like oh it's the. It's the this. And it's the that. and oh, it's the. But we don't. Like I know we get like the. Dracula myth. But we don't get the cool reveal of him knowing. What. The wilting is whatever the fuck it's called. The wasting. Um, the wasting is like he keeps being like the wasting as if he knows what it is yeah but we never get him like explain to the villagers how he knows what it is or whatever so it seems to be a, a story of like the doctor knows everything hmm. but like we don't get in my opinion we don't get the best sort of explanation of that or the best follow through on that compared to what we've seen in previous stories where the doctor knows something from a previous adventure and it's presented in a good way like his reveal of how he knew it was in a good way we never know other than like in the dracula myth he talks about is the wasting mentioned there is is that how he knew what it was like i still don't know what the wasting is yeah like i I imagine the wasting is meant to be like what the the name the villagers give to people who have their blood sucked but because the whole zombie nocturnal element and finding bodies that have vamp- that have bat bites on them bit was removed from the script, mm. the wasting on its own makes no fucking sense. <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, like, if, if the wasting is a thing of where people, they find bodies with their blood drained and the lords are meant to protect them from it, the lords are doing a fairly shit job. Well, the lords say they protect them from it. Yeah. Do you know? But no, they, but, but like, you... Yeah, so, but like for me, for the doctor being like, oh, the wasting, as if he knows what the fuck it is. Mm. I'm like, whatever. Um, the backstory of the Dracula myth, the doctor saying like, oh, this old hermit I was friends with, aka Camper of Russia, mm-hmm. um, told me this story. It was interesting, in a way. Do you know, we will have future doctors who, obviously we had it with... Um, Doc John, we will have future doctors sort of retelling stories from their youth and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was interesting, but I think it's because it's Dracula. Um, it doesn't really come across like something the doctor would actually believe. 
or would even remember. Do you know? Like, mm. and maybe it's because of the chase and the doctor's reaction to Dracula in the chase. Very possibly. But when he was describing the myth, I'm like, and you didn't mention this in that episode? No? Um. So that for me was a little bit wishy-washy. The whole thing with him, like, going back to the TARDIS and finding out, like, how to kill the final whatever that just went on for fucking ages like oh it's not really in the memory banks it's a physical copy and he has to print out this big long thing every time i was like oh my god whatever and then when he gets to actually his attack where he's got like the three things mm-hmm. it's like he knows his friends are in trouble and he's like cool i'm gonna climb up i'm gonna do this and this and this ho hum this one doesn't work. I will try the next one. Like, dude, where's your urgency? Like, on the last one, we got a little bit of urgency. But, like, for the first two, it's like, oh, didn't work. Time to try the next one. I'm like, dude, you should be flying up that ladder, banging buttons and fucking off. Like, I know you're Tom Baker, and so you therefore you don't have the same reactions as most people. But, like, there's, there's a fucking mine. Hmm. You, you spend so long looking up the thing in the computer and then having your lend me your ears moment like you know, it's like a little bit of urgency is fine um what i did like though is i did actually quite like the lend me your ears scene because mm-hmm. i'm like hello men in tights how are you doing <laughs> <laughs> i know you referred to what it's actually yeah from the way it was played out here is very Menendites. Are you with me? Yay or nay? Which one wins yes? <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was really about it. Like, he was there. He did stuff. Hmm. But I just feel, and I don't know whether it was because, like, except maybe it was because Tom was ill, but it just seemed just sort of, meh. He's there. Hmm. He did stuff. And that's it. How about you? Um, so yeah, I I I do agree with uh, some of what you're saying. All right, like um, the 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 scene with the now I love a good lore dump. I I do because you know I love lore, but that I did think that that did go on a slight bit too long. Um, although we did kind of get the flip side of it, whereas canine was like, no, it's not here. I told you, it's not here. Did he ever think of checking your big massive fuck off library? <laughs> um, so they gave us the benefit of canine stuff, but for the doctor, yeah, it just did seem to go on a small bit too long. And even like with the whole, I think there was a lot of repetition about how do I do this, how do I do this, and just in different locations. Um, stuff that I did like, I did like him telling you know, again, telling the story about you know the old meeting with the old hermit. Now, so far, I don't think anyone has done a story, like a retelling of a story as good as John has done from the one he did in The Time Monster, because that one was just fucking beautiful. Um, But it was nice to see him kind of go back to that side of things again. Um, Two things actually about that cell sequence. One, Tom is a really good, Tom is really good at selling a physical altercation with someone. Mm. 
because he uses his teeth quite a bit. You know, when he knocked that guy out, it was like the whole, the you knew like the pain of like him having to fucking knock a guy out. Mm. Um, also, it did look like he actually, I know that he tucked his head down to take the impact of the door. No, he actually, he actually got hit by the door. No, he actually got hit oh, by the door. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, like, I was like the, going, the, oh. The days, like delay. Yeah, he yeah. actually got hit okay. by the door. Yeah, Jesus, because like... I, I so like, like myself and my friends, we used to do like amateur movies before and we were filming a fight sequence and I had to throw myself back. I threw myself back and I hit a door and it was like the sound wasn't added in. That was me added for the next couple of hours. The lads were like, you can't fall asleep. You can't fall asleep. You can't fall asleep. But um, I did like the whole MacGyvering of a solution with the scout ship. Uh, into like I'll, this is all right i'll turn this exploration vehicle into a big giant flying stake um his interactions with the majority of the characters were interesting like th- no they weren't fully really fleshed out unfortunately because i think there's an issue with pacing in this story yeah um but like i liked his interactions with Archon. I liked his stuff with Tarek and with his mission stuff with Ivo. One thing I would have loved to have seen, and I think we could have got at least 10 minutes of it, if they had t- tightened up a bit, is actually an interaction with the Vampire King. Yeah. Because, like, we love it when the Doctor takes on the big bad evil guy. Mm. Um, so it would have been very interesting to see. Or even alas. a mental battle. Uh, yeah, like or a mental conversation because it's like, okay, Alcon has some sort of psychic ability, so mm. that's how the Great One is communicating. We know that the Doctor also has psychic abilities, yep. so why couldn't the Great One, you know, have a dig at him? Um, so it's still, I think, an ongoing trend from the last story of like, you know, all right, we're kind of getting a flair for Tom when he was in the Hinchcliffe era. Mm. And one thing I will say is that, like, and you kind of pointed it out um, a couple of weeks ago when I was kind of talking about John Nathan Turner's mission plan and Christopher Bimey's mission plan to make who serious, but then the first two stories that they turned out weren't overly serious. Mm. The, the tone of this one and of Full Circle, I fully understand what they're going for now. And, like, yeah, absolutely, I was kind of jumping the gun because, as you said, at the time, less isn't, you know, none. What do you say? Less, less isn't is none. none. Yeah, less isn't none. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, no, like, I think they've actually, like, they've set a, a really good tone with the Doctor and with the story for these last two stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, that's pretty much it for me, um, for the Doctor. Very good. Very good. So. We have Romana, K9, and Adric in the companion bracket. How do you want to do it? Let's do the bestest boy first. Okay, cool. Did I miss something? And mm. I'll mention it again when we talk about Ivo. Why the fuck did Ivo not like K9? Oh, because he's a dog. Is that the only reason? Yeah. Okay. Because he's he's a robot dog. Okay, so one interesting thing about K9 in this story, we saw him leave the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. We have never seen it before. Usually they cut away and suddenly he's gone down the little the little step. 
But this time we actually saw him roll down the step. Which begs the question, how does he get back in? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say, didn't we see him leave in Horns of Nyman? But no, they, they cut. No, they, they cut. They cut or else they only show like his head. They don't show his his wheels. And whereas mm-hmm. this time we actually got to see his wheels come out. Um, for me, I think K9 in the story was used about as well as he could be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the scene between him and Adric was interesting. Um, I'll mm-hmm. talk about it more when I talk about Adric, but it was an interesting scene to see. Um, it really gave flashbacks to... Um, oh... What was the one with your man who looked like David Bowie? Um, I have forgotten the name of the story. A story with someone that looks like Bowie. Yeah. The guy in the white costume. And the invisible ship. Oh, uh, Shadow. Yeah. Th- that one. <laughs> that one that's like quite famous that I've just forgotten the fucking name of. <laughs> it did, like... Adric's logic with K9 and K9's response did kind of remind me of the doctor sort of playing the computer. And, sh- and ship, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was reminded of that. The one thing I would have liked to have seen from K9 in this story is and it's sort of like jumping ahead um, to like Sarah Jane Adventures and stuff. I would have liked to have seen K9 sort of try to debunk the whole vampire thing mm-hmm. and be like yes there are vampires in every culture but there is no such thing as a vampire like, you know him sort of be like you know there's nothing there do you know like mm-hmm. I, I would have liked to have seen the doctor trying to convince K9 it was like do you know mm-hmm. um and be like you know K9 like search your memory banks for all your information on this like well I don't have any. Why would I have information on that? It's fucking. It's a story. Um, the other thing I found weird was before the Doctor Romana set out. I almost feel like maybe John Leeson was sick or something because mm. they go outside, they have a look, they come back in, then the Doctor's leaving, and he crouches down to K nine. I was like, I know you want to come, but someone has to. Mind. And he's having a conversation, and K nine isn't talking back. Mm-hmm. And I'm like. Did John have to go to the toilet? Like, <laughs> why is the why doesn't K nine say anything? Well, I think it's in like, that interaction. Yeah, because like the 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 operator just has him lower his head and like yeah, turn in his ears. So maybe just Terence just didn't write dialogue for that section. Maybe, um, but it was a bit weird. Um, but yeah, so overall though, like I mean, K nine is bestest boy. He's the best one to bring into battle. I love that, like. At the end, when he gave the signal, someone, I'm assuming, had put him on, on the throne. <laughs> yeah, that that was good. <laughs> Which I thought was really good. Um, but yeah, and I said a couple of weird things, and like I would have liked to have seen K9 being a being of logic and fact, and the Doctor having to convince K9 that this is a real thing. Like when when the Doctor can't find. The listing in the memory banks. K nine, like K nine's like, oh, did you think of checking the library? But I would have liked, I, I almost would have preferred it if K nine was like, well, if it's not in the memory banks, then it's not there. Mm-hmm. Do you know? 
and maybe that way like they go to it's like well if it's not in the memory banks where would it be and then the doctor's like oh we'll have a physical copy in the library and whatever well, I don't know I guess I just sort of wanted a bit more out of that no you actually raise a really good point and again it's kind of it highlights an issue with the scripting of the story because okay my first point is I, I really enjoyed K9 in the story mm. Because I liked how he was the one that was correct like, again correcting the doctor on stuff, like um, as I said, check your library, you know. Mm. Uh, also, the computations for e space being a much narrower framework than mm. real space. Um, like so, again, he was the one that seemed to be doing a lot more educating than the doctor was in yep. this story. I thought. Uh, but no, you ra- and also leading the daring commando raid was fantastic, and being up on top of the throne was excellent. Um, but no, you raised a good point about Dracula uh, earlier on, and Kana not having any lore, and so we're led to believe that this race of vampires are meant to be the source for vampire lore throughout the universe. Mm. But the thing then is that it's the Time Lords that fought the war with the vampires. And the Time Lords then became their pacifist, non-intrusive policies then apparently were born from this war. Mm. So it raises the question, how did vampire lore get to the rest of the universe? Yeah. It, it's a... Because if the, if the King Vampire gets to East, into E-Space... Then not and we're like again. E space seems to let draw stuff in as opposed to letting anything out. So again, how does the Lord disseminate throughout the universe? Yeah, I think I'll talk about that a bit more when I get to the overall. But th- that was the same type of thing that was bothering me. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Um, because like this war apparently happened in the days of Rassilon's youth, and Rassilon is considered to be. Like for a lot of civilizations, aren't even a thing at the time mm. of Rassilon's youth. Yeah. Cool. Uh, who do you want to do next? Uh, we'll do Romana. Cool. So Romana. Romana was. Um, she was in the story. <laughs> I distinctly remember seeing her. Yeah, that was Romana. Um, okay. <laughs> no, but seriously though, like, I was really hoping after last week that we'd see a really strong bond developing between Romana and Adric because they seemed to get mm. along last week, and I was mm. really looking forward to seeing that develop more. So, like, once they were together, like once she had, you know, tried to rescue him, whatever. Once they were together. I was really looking forward to them teaming up, them bouncing ideas off of each other and whatever. And we didn't get that. And that's mostly because of the writing choice they made for Adric. Mm-hmm. But like, maybe I'm downplaying the fact that she did try to lead the rescue to save Adric and whatever. But other than that, like she was there. You know, she's, she mentions the MacGuffin of there's information in the TARDIS about how to defeat vampires when the doctor had to explain to her 
what the fuck a vampire was. Do you know, it's like, well, if she knew what was in the book of Rastalan, you know, it. Well, like, I don't think I, like, I think and it might be just the wording of the dialogue because the way that I took it was that the, so the, the war is, it it's only really, it's a, it's a fairy tale mm. for a lot of we'll say the older generation of Time Lords because mm. like, we're led to, you know, we know that the Doctor is much older than Romana. Mm. So this is the fairy tale. And from what we've seen from Romana thus far, she's not really a fairy tale type person. But when the Doctor mentions the fact that it was in the days of Ras- talking about like, the fact that it was Rassilon leading the war, mm. that she goes like, when was it? Oh, because the information that we're looking for might be in this book called The Record of Rassilon. So do I- yeah, but I think Sibbert K9, though, I wouldn't expect her to go to that. I'd expect her to be like, oh, clearly that's nonsense. Mm. Do you know? Um, is it episode one and episode two? She's there. Yeah. <laughs> she has her attempted rescue of Adric. We'll give her credit for that. And then she's in a sacrifice question for you right yeah because we've so like romana has the the time lord romana has been on multiple adventures with the doctors now mm. so would the concept of a vampire like creature not entirely be alien to her because of the stones of blood maybe I think it's because I I see the Romanas as two different people at this point. Yeah, no, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, it, and, that, and that's the thing where it's like, because we went, it, it goes back to our discussion from Destiny of the Daleks. Mm. Like, is it meant to be the same regeneration just with a chosen face or is it a brand new person? Yeah. Like, the thing with Romana in this one, right, I'll be honest, is that like, I want her to be doing more. Do you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. For so much, she's just there. Um, like there was a scene, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like I'm waiting for the explosion because I really wanted a strong bond between Romana and Adric. Mm-hmm. When Adric is joining forces with the bad guys, and Romana is trying to convince him, and he's like. One of my family already died for you, Time Lord. I'm not going to let another one die for you. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my god. Can't believe he just said that. Because mm-hmm. obviously, bear in mind, at the time, the audience is meant to think that Adric really believes this, whatever. Yeah. But we never get her being like, you know, there's no f- follow up to it, there- there's no emotional payoff. Like again, you there's, imagine him throwing that back in Romana one's face. Yeah. There's no acknowledgement of Varsha's death. Yeah. Like even later on, like at the end, like when he's like, Oh, I was only playing along, like to whatever you know, you'd kinda of want a moment of her being like, Yeah, I know. I knew that at the time too. About your brother though, I am sorry. There was no there was no connection, which was bothering yeah. me. The nearest thing to like some sort of relationship between the two of them that we do get is at the end where she, as I said, jokingly uses his terminology back against him. 
Like, yeah. well, you didn't quite rescue me, did you? Yeah. And, and it's just sort of the in joke. But, like, I think you see, this is sometimes like, like we've talked about it before. This is sometimes the issue with Doctor Who in the classic era when they try and do these serialized stories or back-to-back mm-hmm. stories but they have different writers and at times with writers that have never done stuff for who before so like and, last the, week and we, the episodes may be filmed out of order oh uh, yeah exactly that's the common it's a horrible trifecta <laughs> because last week it was i cannot remember his name but that young fella, that was his first mm. contribution ever. Meanwhile, we have Terence, who was an old hand with a certain mentality, shall we say. Mm. <laughs> um, so, like, when you're doing these serialized stories, it's really, really tough because it looks like there's this complete disconnect as to what everyone understands the character to be. Yeah. Which is and- amazing because if you think about it, like, when we go back to the early days where each story kind of led into, especially for like the first season, each story, mm. or even the first two seasons, each story led into the next one. But there never seemed to be this huge disconnect between the characters. Well, or at least that got us saying that, Jesus, that's very out of fucking character for them. Yeah. The thing is, like, if you look at Terence's writing, like he himself, so not when he was script editor, but when he was writing, the War Games... The female characters in the war games, I think, were very strong. Mm, yeah. Thank you, my goodness. Robot, we had this weird mismatch of Miss Winters and then Sarah Jane. Mm-hmm. Where we have the women's lib line and stuff like that. But at the end, it's Sarah Jane and King Kong. Mm-hmm. So not, not the strongest writing. In Brain of Morbius... We had that sort of hammer horror, which he wrote with Bob Holmes. Um, but also, like, Sarah Jane's blinded and she's lost and, like, she doesn't get to do as much. Mm-hmm. But then we've got horror of Frank Rock. Do you know? And so mm-hmm. we can sort of see through them, like, the development of Terence writing female characters. And then we get to this one. And it's like he was like, you know, he wrote the story three years prior. It's like he doesn't know who Romana is. Mm. So he gave her the line about, oh, it would be in the TARDIS memory banks or whatever. But then he also had her being like, as opposed to her being also turned into a vampire. Type of vampire, that'd be fucking scary as hell. Like, oh no, she's going to be the sacrifice and she's going to wear the white dress and whatever. And I'm like, ah, oh, Terrence, come on. Like, you know. Actually, yeah. Uh, you, you raised a good point there and I know that we're kind of going into the weeds on this kind of stuff as well. Like, But um, the... We talked about... You, just, you mentioned the war games and how hmm. Zoe and Lady cannot remember the name of the character mm. but I think it might have been Lady Jane I think it might have been Lady Jane mm. uh, they were very strong bear in mind that Terence co-wrote that with Malcolm Hulk yes 
and Malcolm did like going through his credits. We had the faceless ones, which mm-hmm. was granted, no, Polly wasn't hugely in it, but your one Samantha was mm-hmm. a very strong character that we liked. Then he also did Doctor Who and the Silurians, which has Liz being mm-hmm. great in it. Uh, he co wrote Ambassadors of Death with Terrence, which is kind of telling with the mm-hmm. way that Liz is treated in that. And then he did Colony in Space, The Sea Devils, Frontier in Space, and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. All of, like, you know, that, that's Malcolm. All yeah. of which have really strong representation for their female characters. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, agree. I mean, what were your other thoughts on Lila? On Lila? What were your other thoughts on Romana? Uh, the one thing is that I, I think it maybe might be more in relation to Tom and Lala. Mm. Because it, it does seem like that their mutual disdain for Matthew mm. has united them. Because the rapport between the Doctor and Romana is actually quite good here. Hmm. there's some really really good relationships between the two of them and initially it was me wondering was it like their impending marriage that was like a reason behind it but no no it's just they hated the new guy <laughs> but no I agree that there was a, like, there was a bit more deferring to the doctor in this and yeah. so yeah it's a, it is kind of a shame yeah uh, so we have Adric. Oh, Adric. Um, my initial reaction is poor Matthew. Because let's say mm. one thing about how Terence writes women. He does not know how to write children. Mm. Um, in my opinion, the writing for Adric in the story was piss poor. Okay. I don't know if Matthew's acting was much better. But he wasn't really given a whole lot to work with. Not necessarily in the scenes he was doing, as in like the story of Adric was quite good. Mm-hmm. I actually quite mm-hmm. liked the story of Adric in the story, mm-hmm. but the actual dialogue he was given was shocking. Like it was just, it was just really poor. Again, I made the correlation last week, but I'm seeing like season one TNG Wesley. Yeah. Do you know this is just really poor dialogue? There's really not much you can do with it, and given. Matthew's greenness at the time mm-hmm. like again like the way the way his lines are delivered comes across very weird it comes across as kind of cheesy yeah and like the thing for me was that like at the beginning we see him outwitting K9 okay and I understand it's, it's a bit weird to act with a robot dog right mm-hmm. but we see him outwitting K9 I'm like ooh interesting We've seen the Doctor do this before. This is interesting. Mm -hmm. Then later, we have him in the village. And, you know, yeah, he's sort of being a little bit blasé. Do you have any XYZ or whatever? But he earns his keep. Mm -hmm. He doesn't sit around expecting them to wait on him. He doesn't, like, when he goes up, he takes one ladle of stew or soup or whatever it is. And that's it. Like, I was kind of half fearful that they would have him be, like, a complete fucking prick. And, Mm. you know, fill up his bowl with several scoopfuls and take two things of bread. And, like, you know, not being... He seemed very aware of the fact that these people didn't have a lot. Mm -hmm. And they were giving him a bit. And so he took it. And then the following morning, we see that he's helping. He's delivering bowls of food. He's trying to get to know people. I'm like, okay, I'm liking this. 
do you know I'm liking what's going the writing not great and I said some of the line reads not great but again what they're doing with Adric I'm really liking it mm-hmm. but then we have the whole thing of him being taken and his double cross of saying that he was going that you're like oh like you know with the doctor and Romana, he's not going to get anywhere. He might not break out of e-space, but like they're giving him like unlimited power and whatever. And like I said, I don't know if it was the dialogue. I don't know if it was the direction. I don't know if it was Matthew. I think it was a combination of all three. It just didn't work. Do you know? Instead of him coming across as intelligent, sneaky, aware of what's going on around him and whatever... He comes across as selfish, two-faced, because you don't, when he says to Romana later, oh, I was only pretending, I was really going to rescue, you don't believe him. Yeah. You don't believe him, because the way the scenes are played, you know, we said it last week that, like, you know, when you have very intelligent young characters when they're written in weak moments, they come across as petulant and they come across as petty. Mm-hmm. And that's the way this was written and played. And I'm like, I'm trying to give you the benefit of the doubt. Again, like we made the example last week of Wesley. I'll forgive Wesley all the live long day for the vast majority of the shit he comes out of his mouth. But it's like, you're making it difficult for me to do mm. that. Like Wesley's like, I'm with Starfleet and we don't lie. <laughs> Terrible dialogue. I don't know what Will was meant to do with the line. But you get the conviction of Wesley through it. Even if it's mm-hmm. cheesy as hell. Yeah. Here, it, it, it's just not selling it. Do you know? Mm-hmm. How about you? Um, so, I I will admit, right? That he did legitimately, he legitimately had me with the turn to the dark side type thing, mm. but that's because the way Terence wrote it, it latched onto the negative aspects of the character that we were discussing last week. Yeah, and so I was like, going, "Fuck it!" Like I, I legitimately believed in that moment that he was going to do something fucking stupid, like actually sign up with them. Mm. But the dialogue isn't great. Like he was like, um. He said, like, oh, it looks like the goodies don't win this time. I'm like, like for fuck's sake. The that's, goodies. Who the fuck yeah, says that? Yeah, that, like? that, that, that's a really bad line. Also, I know that Romana's title would be Time Lady. Mm. But the way he says it, it's like, sorry, Time Lady. It's like, that just sounds stupid. The way the way that it was delivered, it does sound stupid. Yeah. Uh, and like I, I think well, no, to be fair, that might be just an intrinsic thing because we've never heard another character address Romana as Time Lady. Yeah. It's always like Time Lords. So like, I've, I, I don't know if we'll ever hear that line delivered in the rest of the show. So I, I can't really compare to anything. But mm. just yeah, the way Adric said it, it did came, it did come across as kind of whatever. Um. I will say though that the line about what the, enough of my family have died for Time Lords already, mm. I did quite like that line. No, mm. maybe he could have sold it a bit sadder, but I think he delivered it okay. Um, but I there's stuff about, as you said, the concept of Adric in the story mm. is is quite good. Like 
you talk about him earning his keep while in the thing. Also, there's an element of compassion that he has towards Ivo's wife. Yeah. Because, like, clearly, you know, we know that she's using Adric as a substitute hmm. for her son while he's gone. I think Adric probably senses that as well. Mm. But he like he doesn't pull away from it. Now he doesn't realistically lean into it, but he's there, he's comforting and supportive. And he I think he has a really good rapport with her. So I did like that. Um I liked no, this was the way that I interpreted it, is that his conversation with Romana while they were chained up about vampires, while to him so indismissive, was coming as part of his plan. Because you can see that uh, at the end of episode three, Tarek throws his knife into Zargo and mm. it uh, hits, sorry, uh, Adric throws the knife and it hits the shoulder. And yeah, nothing there. But Adric knows that from the conversation with Romana that a, a shot to the heart will do it. Mm. And his plan was, I think it was quite good, was while Alcon is distracted with the ceremony, mm. run up and stab him in the heart. But he just didn't account for the fact that Alcon is a lot more powerful than he first suspected. Mm. So I, I'm not going to fault him for that idea. Because um, at least it's him actually thinking. But, yeah. I agree it, with you, but my issue is just the way it was portrayed yeah, didn't the, the, sell yeah. what he was doing. Do you know? Yeah, because like, you know, I do agree with the whole thing. I have a plan. It's like, uh, it's coming across as kind of fake. Hmm. Yeah. So, one of those things were on paper good, in visual not so good. Yeah. So, moving on. We have the sorry, <laughs> we have the prominent characters. Uh so we have Kalmar, Tarek, Varus, Ivo, and. We'll put Habris last, I think, because mm-hmm. he does seem like the natural transition character into villains. So what way do you want to do it? Let's do Varys, Tarek, Ivo, Kalmar, Habris. Cool. I don't have a lot to say on Varys. I thought he was very I, one note. I want weapons and to fight, and that was pretty much it. I have one line that might give you a giggle. Yeah. The boy in the grey flannel suit has been bouncing back and forth like a tennis ball. <laughs> That is a reference to juror number 12 from 12 Angry Men, who does change his opinion uh, with what he feels is the strongest voice in the room. Not necessarily the strongest argument, but the strongest voice. Yeah, like, for me, Varys was, you know, he was there to be the, I want weapons, I want to fight, I want weapons, I want to fight. That, that was kind of his job. <laughs> but see, but then as I said, like the comparison to Juror Twelve is that like he he does that, but then Calmar is saying like, yo, we need to wait to prepare, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, you're right, you know, like yeah, we but, should we should, wait. but at his core, oh, at his core, I want weapons yeah. and I want to fight. <laughs> yeah, but he just flits back and forth like, and that that that's all it is. Is like it's he's the representative of indecision. Mm. Uh, so you said Tarek next. Yeah, Tarek I liked um, mm. because I like what Tarek represented. So as opposed to Varys, who for the most part was, I'm rebelling, let me rebel. Um, mm. Tarek is intelligent. 
Mm-hmm. He's brave. He was a guard. He guarded the lords. So he mm-hmm. knows more about what goes on behind those walls than anybody else. But I like what he represents because when you're selected, you're selected for one of two things. Either you're made a guard or you're made dinner. Those are your two options, right? He was made a guard, which puts him in a position of privilege. It gives him more safety, one would imagine. Particularly because it doesn't really seem like... I mean, they say that there's rebels, but like we don't really hear much about people fighting back. Yeah. So he was in a good position. And he still rebelled. Hmm. And I like that. I like that we see that character. Because we'll talk about Habers in a bit. But I like that with Tarek. We have someone who shows that the rebels come from all quarters. It's not mm-hmm. just the peasants rising up. It's the like, guards. In, thinking about in classes, like guards are like a higher class. Mm-hmm. And he still rebelled. And he yeah. fought for everybody. Not just for himself. Not just for the other guards he was fighting for everybody and i really liked that mm-hmm. an interesting thing and i'll talk about it more we talk about calmer i think Tarek was the leader the rebels needed mm. and it sucks that they're not the le- he's not the leader they got <laughs> yeah no, I, I agree i know i completely agree like he was one of the most interesting characters in the whole story i thought because at first, it appears he only wants to use the Doctor Romana's help just so they can deal with the Lords. Mm. You know? But as the story goes on, like he legitimately wants to save them. Yeah. Like it's not like while I think he does frame it as like, you know, I'll get them in and bring they can and bring them out with the knowledge. It's like well he could have just as easily broken in and got the knowledge and, you know, come out again. He he actually wants to save them. And I think this is evidenced by the fact that he doesn't show any hesitation towards helping uh, Romana go find Adric. Mm. There's never this thing of like, oh, we need to leave now or anything like that. It's he actually, and he risks his life yeah. for them. And, like, well, and he ends up costing his life, which, and he dies in a quite a traumatic way because Camilla essentially breaks his arm mm. and then Zargo throws him enough force into a wall to crack his skull wait he throws him onto a table oh yeah, yeah um and it's almost like you know he either cracked his skull or broke his spine or something but there's yeah. an, the implication that he was thrown with such force that he just died straight away yeah so like again uh sorry i remember like the character from horror fag rock higgins mm-hmm. he's very much like higgins that really good supporting character that we like that unfortunately is the fodder the emotional fodder mm-hmm. for the story Uh, so then is Kalmar? So I think Kalmar is an interesting character. Um, I love that he is focused on learning things that he couldn't possibly understand. Mm-hmm. But the knowledge is there. And so he wants to, he wants to find it. He wants to understand it. However, what I'm not a fan of is A, his assumption 
that once the revolution is successful that he'll be the one in charge I'm like mm-hmm. okay where did that come from was there an election we didn't know about particularly because he seems more focused on learning than actually rebelling <laughs> yeah like I love that he wants to learn <clears throat> but that should be his focus like he should be lead scientist not mm-hmm. leader Tarek should be leader Kalmar, you know, is a researcher. He's a scientist. I don't see him being an effective leader for anybody because I see him being sat in that cave just playing with that computer all day. Mm-hmm. Do you know? So, I think he was. I think he's an interesting character because it's interesting to see, particularly like an older character, trying to attain knowledge, trying to learn how this system works. I think that's great. I just think he's a poor leader. He's not a strong leader. He's not an effective leader. He doesn't really, I mean, like you said, he has a little bit of sway over Varus, but not really. I think it's mostly Tarek that keeps Varus in line for the most part. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And Ivo obviously is like not, not, not listening to you anymore. Like they're getting sick of him not doing anything. And mm-hmm. even when the doctor comes up with a plan, he has to actually see the beast before he agrees to it. Yeah. Because he's like, oh, we need to learn more. We need to learn more. I was like, okay, but there's three of them and there's fucking how many of you? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So I said, I think he's interesting, but I think he's a poor leader and I don't think he should have been left in charge afterwards. I don't know who else they could have picked at that point, but I feel for them that he is the one left in charge because what I see happening with him is that because he spends so much time trying to learn more that surprisingly they just remain stagnant because it's constantly about what we can learn more not about improving things for everybody if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah how about you so I've actually been kind of going back just out of idle curiosity and I've been watching some scenes from the Hartnell era and listening Mm. to our discussions on them and Kalmar reminds me of two things one is a character from Dalek Invasion of Earth uh, Dortman who was Mm. the intellectual leader of the uh, resistance and how we talked about that because he was the most educated person there he felt that he was always in the right because he was the smartest and another comparison that Kalmar makes in the Hartland era it, to me is uh, in the Daleks, when Barbara essentially goes to Ian and the Doctor, just the two of you are just fucking talking back and forth. Would one of you make a decision? Kalmar mm. feels like the embodiment of that back and forth. Because, as you said, I understand completely understand the whole thing of we need to regain the knowledge that was lost. But in a kind of a gaming type sense, if you're playing like a strategic battle, you have to go on the offensive at some point. Because if you're constantly playing at the, on the defense, you're going to miss your window. Mm. And you're you're not going to win that fight because you're just going to have to retreat and retreat and retreat as all of your resources are worn down. So I completely agree that Kalmar is not an effective leader. And I know the doctor has like restarted some of their machinery. With Kalmar's leadership, I don't see them ever getting out of e-space. 
Yeah, and like, I mean, you used the, the example there in terms of like a gaming perspective, but like in my mind, Calmer isn't doing offense. Mm-hmm. He's also not doing defense. He's doing a weird sort of solo camp on the edge of the map. Yeah. Away from everybody else. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. not attacking or defending. Do you know, the guards came two days in a row for a selection. Mm-hmm. Where was Calmar and his men? They weren't there. They weren't there. Um, like, so, like, the pursuit of knowledge is great. If that's what he wants to do, fantastic. You know, more power to him, but someone else should lead if that's the case. Mm-hmm. Also, it does raise a question. Like, Calmar is significantly older than the rest of the resistance group. Mm-hmm. So, like, how long ago did he did this resistance group start? Like, how long have they been? We need to. We need more evidence. We need more proof. We need more education. How long have they been hearing this line? Yeah. And how did they get him to go in with him? And how did he get them to go in with him in the first place? Yeah. Do you know? Like, it, did he find the computer systems first and figure it out, and that brought people to him, or did he join them and then they found the computer together? And because of his intelligence and be able to figure it out, they pivoted from whoever led them before to him. Like it, it was a lack of background. That would have made you know, it more you, interesting. Do you know something? Kalmar would make a great decider. He would. <laughs> He'd fit in with the bad ones at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> See, what you need is that you need Logan and Kalmar. Mm. Logan is decisive. You know, he can make decisions and Kalmar can do research. Or you need Tarek being leader and Kalmar being head scientist. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, Ivo. I feel bad for Ivo, for the most part, um, because of his position in the village. Mm-hmm. He's the one who puts forward the shortlist mm-hmm. for selection. So he has to pick people knowing that some of them will die or never be seen again while some of them will become guards and for the ones who become guards that's great you know it's an escalation in status and whatever but he has to make that selection every time and then once the guards pick who they want he stays behind and you know obviously his own son was selected and we see that that was very upsetting for him and his wife but can you imagine they all live in close proximity. They all eat in the central feasting hall. Imagine the following day seeing a man and his wife knowing that you picked their son mm-hmm. to be on the short list. And then their son yeah. was taken away or their daughter mm-hmm. was taken away or their mother or their brother, whatever. Um, having to live with that must be very draining. Um, I think the fact that he's part of the resistance knowing that that's what he has to do every day makes sense um again i do wonder like have the resistance ever tried to actually fucking help him (laughs) with what he has to do um 
And so I said I felt bad for him for the most part. But then he came up with like this toot against K9. I'm like, fuck off. What the fuck did he ever do? <laughs> I was wondering what like what the <clears throat> least part was that you yeah, didn't like. Fuck off. <laughs> Best boy did nothing and you're treating him like crap. Fuck you. <laughs> How about you? Um, so like some other stuff in the story. There's an element of the writing here that might affect my thoughts on Ivo. Which is, how did he find out about his son? Mm. Because up until up until the doctor and uh, Romana discovered the bodies in the cat- in the caverns beneath the, the castle, all we know is that those selected never return. Mm. And <clears throat> we've never had any sort of an inkling that the villagers believe the lords to be, you know, like cannibals or blood drinkers mm. or anything like that. So he comes in and he says, Carl is dead. They bled him dry. So how do you know that? Did you find the body? In which case, um, like, did you find the rest of, like, did you find more bodies? Did it, did, did you see just this huge extra like burial pit full of mm. older bodies? Is that how you found out? Or are you making an assumption based on rumors? Because if you're making an assumption based on rumors, only acting upon it when your son is the person that has died mm. after you have knowingly selected however many people to do it, I'm less sympathetic towards you. Mm. But if you found a burial pit and you saw your son's body in it, then the fact that all of your efforts have proven to be in vain is fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. Like, the other thing that he does, and I'll talk about it more in a second when we talk about Habers, is he kills Habers. Yeah. Because of what happened to his son. Mm-hmm. This is after... The whole thing about the vampires thing has been explained to him. Yeah. I'm like, you really blame him? This guy that you kind of called friend. You think he deliberately picked your son to not be a guard and instead to be dinner. You think he did that too, on purpose. It's like, what? <laughs> um, And again, like you feel for him, but it's like, I think his reaction to Habers is a bit over the topic. Attacking him, fine. But, like, it wasn't Habers' fault. <laughs> but, like, yeah, because, like, uh, Haber, like, Habers says before Ivo charges him that I tried to help him. Yeah. And, again, we're we're just left to... We're left with the question, is this just a bluff of a man that is going to be killed you know or did he legitimately try to do it because we mm. don't see any like after like after Carlos taken we never see him again so yeah. we never see any of the whole oh step this way my child and the cloak fucking descends over them or anything like that um so 
the more we talk about it, the more that there's an awful lot of fucking grey in the story. Mm. And you're like, Christopher and John, in order to um, balance out Peter's desire for what to direct, plus their own desire for what they wanted the script to be, I'd be I'd be interested to see the original draft of the story. Mm. I would. Because how much actual explanationary dialogue or exposition was removed. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose that's a really good segue into Havers. Yeah, so when we were talking about whether we should include Havers, I said that Havers, for me, was the most interesting character in the story. And he is. Um, because Havers, to me, represents who Tarek once was. So, like I said, as a guard, Habers has power over the villagers. He also seems to be the head guard. Mm-hmm. You know, he's brought into council with the big three. But we also hear about how he eats with the villagers. He's friendly with them. Like, him and Ivo are kind of friends. So, yeah, Ivo even says, like, you eat with us and whatever. So... Clearly, he's not a total asshole. <laughs> on the same side, or on the other side, he shows great reverence for the lords and those he perceives as lords. Like, immediately, like, once he looks at the Doctor and Romana and he's like, they must be lords. And his deference to them is not done in a kiss-ass way. It's done in a genuine respect. Do you know? But, from my perspective, we can tell as the story's progressing, Habrus's loyalty to the Lords isn't blind. You know, whether it's because of what happened to Ivo's son or whatever, but like when um Alcon says like your guards, that's what you're there for. You're there to die. That's your job. But you can tell even before that, Habrus was sort of wary of what they were asking him to do. Like when Alcon was like, go for a selecting. And he's like, what do you mean? We just had one. You know, he's not like, he's not like a sheriff of Nottingham. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Who gets mm. great joy out of it. He clearly doesn't. And like I said, like, you sort of imagine that like, he could, he is who Tarek once was. A guard who became disillusioned. And that for me makes him the most interesting because you tie him with Tarek and you see that evolution of a character from an amazing position of power to someone rebelling. Like I said, what, mm. why I feel bad for Habers is that because we don't get the scene based off what we've seen of his character, I believe my head canon is that he did try and save Ivo's son. Like we see the list, the selection of people that Ivo's putting forward and we heard mention of like they're looking for people with certain attributes I can imagine Habers walking in the line being like well none of these people is going to be is going to be a guard you know the villagers don't have strong enough stock of people left I have to but I have to bring them someone who will fit the role because again he does believe genuinely about a lot of this stuff and so I imagine he sees Ivo's son off the side and is like, you know, Ivo's offering up his wife in this situation. 
his wife would never be selected for a guard. She'd go into the other option. But his son, his son is young and his son is strong. He could be a guard with me. And so I think he did try to defend Ivo's son. I think he picked Ivo's son specifically to be a guard, not to be a sacrifice. And that's why he sent Ivo's wife back. Because if she was brought up, she would have been sacrificed and he didn't want that. So don't don't give me your wife. I'll take your son. He'll be a guard. And he'll be with me. Do you know? I don't know. Maybe mm. I read like far too into it. But that's the read I got of it. Alright. I, I don't know if I agree with you on this one. Mm. Because so Ugh, sorry, brain. Okay. As far as we're led to believe, the Lord's never set foot outside the castle. Mm. All the, the 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 selecting for Adric is brought in. That's the first time a Lord has ever been there to oversee the selection process. Mm. So, with that in mind. How would they know what the available stock of people is like within the village? Like, would they know that Carl existed? Well, I'm. Orkon is telepathic. True, but like <laughs> this, no, no, no Orkon is telepathic. Yeah, like, and so, Orkon is the one who does this, who does, who ultimately does the selection at the end. Hmm. So, but like. But the thing then is that is this is where again the right I I am going to kind of put a lot of this under the writing because Alcon's telepathy is a strange one because Carl by the look of him is about sixteen, maybe seventeen. He's of a similar age to Adric. So like and the selecting process I presume is once a year. So, like, if their whole thing about the stock is, like, you know, like, we've, they haven't been good stock for ages, Alcon's telepathy should have picked up on Carl in the previous selection, or the selection before that. So, it's, again, like, you know, I, I see, like, I do see where you're coming from, but when we first see Habris, he doesn't look like someone that's resigned to do this job when he says the time of selecting is at hand and he's told to go off. Like he's not gleefully smiling, but nor is he like stone faced and disheartened. And I get the impression of of a guy that is trying to have his cake and eating it too, because he he's a guard, he serves, he's loyal, you know, he's kept okay inside the thing. But then he goes down and he makes the selection and he also goes and he eats with the villagers and he and tries to be pally pally with Ivo, knowing full well that he's eating into their food resources, despite the fact that Ivo repeatedly says we need more food because our harvests are poor because we, we don't have enough food allowance. And Haber says, oh, like I, I'm doing my best, but you're still coming down and you're still eating the food. Yeah, you and I see that very differently. Yeah. Like, cause I, the way I see Habris is 
at the beginning, Habers believes in what they do. Mm. do you know, he has reverence for the Lords. He understands his purpose. But he's not, like I said, he's not like Sheriff of Nottingham, you know, best day ever, right? Mm-hmm. Nor is he like Tarek, who has become disillusioned. Habris' disillusionment comes as the story progresses. And decisions are being made that go against the tradition. It goes against what's come before. So there's that. In terms of him like playing Pali Pali and eating their food, I didn't see it that way. I saw it because Habers himself was once a villager. Hmm. And, you know, I don't see it as like, oh, he's coming down and eating their food. Like, again, he's not Sheriff of Nottingham. Like, you know, he didn't enter the eating hall and take food from someone's mouth and start munching down on it. Like, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like when mm. Ivo says, "Like I've seen you eat with us," I, I didn't. It it didn't come across to me as like, you know, you come in here and you eat our food, and now you're going to do this. It came across as like, you ate with us. Do you know? Emphasis on the word with, not on the word mm. ate. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I know. I, I get that, but it's. Like and I I I do st- at the end yeah there there's the, the the final shattering of the illusion that like you're you are nothing but fodder for the guards, but I think if he was as concerned for the villagers as I don't know I I feel like that he would have tried maybe towards the end of part three or something. Like in feeding information to Ivo or something like that, like as a turncoat, that the lords aren't what I once thought they were, and I was wrong, and I'm sorry, and this side of things. Flip that around, though. He knows Ivo's son is dead. Yeah, no, it's fair. I don't know. I just like. Again, I th- I think my main point just comes goes back to the kind of start of who's who's to know about Carl's existence, and if you're going and if you and as you said like Orkon's telepathic ability, why wasn't Carl selected sooner? No, I don't mean that Orkon's telepathic ability is why he selected Carl. I'm saying that Orkon Orkon is telepathic, mm-hmm. so if Habers returns with poor stock. Mm. none of whom are strong enough to become guards Orkhan will then be like what the hell is happening he's like oh this is the strongest they have uh, I and see, then I see, he I... turns his attention and finds it okay you know? no, I, I, I see what you're saying now I, I thought you meant that he, he could use his telepathic ability to scan the village for yeah no he yeah. would eventually if he's being told this is the strongest stock we have, and he's like, I call bullshit. Yeah. Not that he's actively doing it all day every day. Yeah. No, no, I, yeah, I see that point there. No, no, right. So, shall we go on to Orkon and his two conspirators? Yeah, absolutely. So, Zargo, Camilla, and Orkon. Mm-hmm. 
for me, it goes Zagro and Camilla are the same, and then Alcon mm. is the worst. <laughs> Would you agree? As in, like, he, he is, like, the main villain yeah. of the trio. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Because, like, for Zago and Camilla, I'm just going to talk about them as one unit, right? Because mm. that is essentially what they are. Yeah. They are so fucking annoying. I'm going to talk about it more in the overall, but the hammy performances are so ridiculous. The way they hold themselves, the way they react with each other, the way they stand, the way they deliver their lines, everything about it is just so irritating. <laughs> it's ridiculous. The faces they make. You've got Alcon standing there looking stocky and serious. And the two of them behind going, <sighs> like a fucking child in a fucking play in primary school or something, playing a vampire. Yeah. It's, it's, it was ridiculous. The two of them are the biggest caricature of a character ever. Um, like I said, no offense to the actors, but like that wasn't the, the script. wasn't great again. Not great dialogue. What the performance? Jesus fucking Christ. Do you want some bread for your ham? Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Like, <laughs> That is my note on Zagro and Camilla. How about you? <laughs> cool. Uh, uh, I, I, yeah, like, I, I don't think I was as peeved as you are with the over the whole <laughs> type shit when they were going full vampire uh i would admit i was very distracted by camilla for the whole story because she reminded me of Gillian anderson in a black wig <laughs> um like the dynamic of the three of them i find is kind of interesting mm. because it zargo was the captain so mm. he's now the king Navigation officer was Camilla, so she's the queen. Maybe uh, I don't. Maybe there was a relationship between the two of them beforehand, because I don't see how navigation officer would be, uh, unless she was like navigation but officer and he needs a queen, uh, and there's only two yeah, other options. So yeah, uh, and then obviously the science officer. Yeah, like that fucking mm. makes every bit of sense. But Jesus, Zargo, he's just he just bitches endlessly like his only real characteristic is that he's envious of Alcon, but he never confronts him about it like this is a this is a prime recipe for like inter-rivalry in mm. this sort of a group dynamic and it's 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 wasted it's a wasted opportunity um and yeah, like it's just like he—he's just there. He now, so is Camilla, but I think Camilla's trait is that she's definitely the more bloodthirsty of the trio, because like she Literally. seems to, yeah, like she seems to relish the whole fuck it um, idea of like just a feeding frenzy and anything to do. She's just like let's just fucking kill them all. I was curious if we were going to get a scene of her like sucking the blood out of Romana's finger. Yeah, um, I was waiting for something like that, or getting the 
the, the, the tissue that Romana was holding on her hand and like having a little nibble of that or something like that. Um, yeah, so like they're really just there to be the vampire king and queen or the vampire mm. lord and lady. Like Aukon is the real meat and bones of that trio. Mm. Uh, so do you want to go on to Aukon? Yeah, because I agree with you. He's the most fleshed out of the three of them. Um, and I think part of it is because he's not in a couple, like he stands alone amongst the three mm-hmm. of them together as a group. So he's a loner out of the three of them. He does his own thing. And over hundreds of years, that means that these two are playing at being king and queen and are playing at being vampires and having a great fucking time doing it. Whereas Orkon is the one who has the connection to the Great One. Mm-hmm. You know, his mental powers are genuinely something to fear. They make him intimidating. They make him interesting. He's not hammy, well, he's not as hammy as the other two. He's very much dedicated and focused, and that makes him more threatening. Like, my sense is that, like, he's the one who believes in the Great One. The other two mm-hmm. are just along for the ride. And yeah, he lets them play being king and queen. But ultimately, when the Great One awakes, those two are fucking their father. Straight away. Like, his response to Adric, I think he would rather bring Adric into the fold and get rid of the other two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you know? Like, he's just using them to give him a base of operations. He doesn't want to be involved with anything else. He's like, just let me do what I'm doing. You guys can play it whatever the fuck you want. Um, and like, he's like I said, to me, Orkon is the villain. Mm-hmm. The other two are playing at being the villain. <laughs> yeah. How about you? I know. I agree. Um, Orkon is a very interesting character because. He reminds me of someone, um, of another character, and it was just because we were talking recently about the Warhammer 40k universe. Mm. Um, and he reminds me of a character called um, Lorgar, who is the first Primarch that is um, tainted by chaos. Because mm. he, he, he's basically, his fate in the Emperor is shattered, and the chaos forces just latch onto it. And they manage to twist him into this perverted version of a of a Primarch that then converts all the others. Um, but Alcon reminds me of that because he's the one that the Great One reached out to. Like, tr- while they were in real space, he somehow managed to latch on. T- now, they say that he brought him into the CV, into E-Space. Maybe they just arrived there by accident, and once they got there, the Great One latched onto him. And I'm wondering why him specifically. Is it because he seems to be the only one with the psychic abilities so maybe Anthony O'Connor had some sort of latent psychic ability within him that the great one latched onto mm-hmm. quite possibly um, or was it the great one using his own um, mental abilities scanned the three of them 
and because Anthony O'Connor is the science officer, would make him more susceptible to influencing the mm. investigation of the unknown, trying to catalogue it, trying to get to the core of something. Um, whatever way it was, he embraced it, fully embraced it. And he may look like Balin from The Hobbit, but uh, with a bowl cut, mm. but he is... He's the most intimidating of the three of them without being a caricature of the Hammer Horror Vampire. Mm. Like he, he he is intimidating, but he's also charismatic because you could see Adric potentially falling for his line. Mm. And I like the sequence where he is at the selecting and he's like, ah, oh, mental shield. Someone is like, and he's like, he can censure an Adric, and he's like, I can promise you. I was going to mention a character there, but I'm not going to because I know you don't like this character. But um, he's one of those ones that can very inf- easily trick people into following him along the path, you know? Mm. Um, I really wish that there had been more interactions between him and the Doctor, him and Romana. Um, because the more that he would talk, the less time there was for the other two, and potentially that there could have been time then to spare for the great one. Uh, although I will say, he is a bit of an idiot, because Romana is meant to be a sacrifice for the great one. Mm. Why, oh, why are you then feeding her to your bats? Unless they're going to each take a little bit of blood, blood and then drop it into the hole where the the great one is, as a sort of like a weird bird type feeling. Is the the bat connection is never explained? I assumed the bats were were an extension of the great one. They, they yeah, that could be it. I thought as well because he was a science officer, maybe he kept specimens of animals. Maybe, but I assumed that the sacrifices get eaten by the bats. Yeah, and, that and then by some weird mumbo jumbo feeds the great one. Hmm. Although no, because the the blood is sucked out of each of the corpses and it's fed through a filtration system into the hole in the ground. Oh, that because I have no clue. <laughs> yeah. God damn it, Terrence. <laughs> So, very interesting overall uh, character, sorry, character discussion, I think. Mm-hmm. So, now we come to the final part of the podcast, which is the overall discussion. So, as you started us off with the characters, you get to start us off with your final thoughts. So, your final thoughts and score, please. So, for me, um, this is a very 70s story. Book ended with 80s. Pardon me. Book ended with 80s credits. What I mean by that is the sets, the lighting, the like camera setup, some of the dialogue is all very reminiscent of 70s Doctor Who, in particular early 70s Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And well, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's very jarring coming off of Full Circle last week. Mm-hmm. Which like for me, like full circle was was a really good episode, 
shot really well, really interesting, whatever. But this seemed like a step backwards in terms of the modernization of the show. And like I said, it feeling like a 70s show isn't bad. I mean, a lot of our favorite stories come from the 70s around the show. But it just feels that like in this 80s, you know, revolution that they're doing with the show, it just sort of sticks out. Um, But let's go into the things I liked. So I'm not going to lie, there's not a whole lot in the things that I liked, which you may have gathered. Um, For me, the concept was interesting. But more so the idea of a resistance rediscovering technology and how it works. Mm. That, for me, I found really interesting. Um, The vampire story, not so much. I I didn't find it interesting as a concept. I would have been perfectly happy if they had done the same type of thing, that those three were really old and they were doing like a tau connection or or something else to live longer Mm -hmm. but making it like canonically vampires i'm like okay not so much um i also like i said i quite like the doctor's you know let me your ears men and tights moment (laughs) because that was quite cool and actually now that we've gone through our conversation i did quite like some of our supporting characters um again most of the idea of them so Mm -hmm. habris and Tarek, i think were interesting characters Mm -hmm. um but the negatives oh the acting it was so over the top like it was pure amateur dramatics and it was fucking painful to watch right from the very first scene mm. like when what was Ivo's wife's name Marta or whatever Marta yeah herself like lady what what show are you in do you know and like when their son gets taken away this sort of like I don't, even just the way they hugged and the way they spoke to each other and held themselves in the scene it was just so over the top and then you've got those two fuckers like Zargo and Camilla like I'm convinced those actors were high as fuck because like what were they on do you know Doctor Who isn't like serious storytelling do you know but at the same time if you compare it to the, the one that actually kept going to me was Time Warner. Mm. Similar type of feel in terms of we've got lords, we've got peasants, we've got whatever. Similar type of dialogue in the sense of like the medieval-esque dialogue. Mm-hmm. But they played it straight. Whereas here no one is playing it straight. <laughs> Yeah, and it's very off-putting. Um, Adric was just poorly written because they talked about the idea behind his actions in the trivia section. We talked about it in the start discussion, but I think he was just poorly written. I don't think they have a fucking clue what they wanted to do with him. 
Um, and then for me, the contrivance behind how the TARDIS has the special information that they need in order to save the day. It's like, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder if that's written down anywhere. When did this happen? Oh, it's in the Book of Rassilon. Oh, did you know that a certain type of TARDIS would have that Book of Rassilon? And it just so happens to be the one that you have. Oh. Holy fucking shit. She could just say, every TARDIS has one. Yeah. Why specifically his? And then when we get there, it's actually not in the system. It's in an actual physical format. And he used to do this weird, stupid, punchy up thing. And then, guess what? Guess what the solution is, Paddy? It's a stake through the heart. Which if the Doctor's aware of vampire myth, he fucking knew already. Like, mm. what did he learn from that MacGuffin that, like, a five-year-old couldn't have figured out? Nothing. And... Do you know what the worst thing was? What? I was bored. Okay. Throughout the whole thing, I was bored. Do you know, I've forgotten half of it. I only watched it yesterday. Which, compared to Full Circle, which we talked mm-hmm. about last week, like we took a week off between watching Full Circle and recording it because I was sick. But literally that whole week that we weren't recording, I was thinking about more and more Mm-hmm. In relation to full circle, I struggled to write notes for our characters <laughs> because I found them really boring and kind of shit. <laughs> so for me, it's a two, and I think that's being generous. Cool. How about you? So I, I'm not gonna lie. I, when I first finished the story, I, it was kind of riding high. I think it was riding at about a three point seven five. But I had to rewatch it again because I realized that I actually couldn't think of anything for my character notes after I finished doing the the recap. So I went back through it, and I realized that. You know, this isn't actually as good as I first thought it was going. I first thought it was, and I think what sucked me in was like there was the horror element to it. Like, I I didn't mind the the vampire lore side of things because I I like vampires and if you can do a nice cool twist on it, that's pretty cool. Uh, I like the the concept of the time lords fighting a big group of giant vampire races. Just reminds me of Underworld. Um. But the characters were, the majority of the characters were surprisingly weak. Um, bad dialogue, as we talked about. Um, poor pacing, poor exposition. And I just found like that I was actually kind of giving it props for the aesthetic. And some of the performance, like Tarek's performance mainly. Uh, and Ibo's. Um fair like my hat is off to the costume and makeup department because i liked the look of everything and i also liked that crumbling aging sequence for the three mm. vampires i thought that was done really really well um 
but there was just a lot in the story that as we were having our character discussion that was like yeah do you want, this isn't actually as good as i first thought it was so i've actually knocked it down to a 2.5 okay not as low as mine but <laughs> i don't know i just think like compared to last week oh it's no it's not as good as last week it's just, it's just so completely different and mm. Like you mentioned Underworld. I'm a huge Underworld fan. You know that. Yeah. Um, but I think, and like, we've loved the Hammer Horror stories we've had up until now. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, you know, we had Frankenstein's monster in Brain of Morbius. Brain of Morbius is great. We've had the mummy, obviously, in Pyramids of Mars. To do Hammer Horror properly, though, you have to play it straight. Mm-hmm. Whereas this was all ham. Yeah. So for me, it was a waste of a vampire story. And the fact that they were actually having it be Dracula, I'm like, no, no. Like, as in they were actually tying it into the Dracula myth. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, no. Just, again, think about Brendan Morbius, which was essentially Frankenstein's monster. But they didn't outright call it that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know? The audience was allowed to make the connection themselves. Like, had it had they just had it be three beings who are draining people's life forces and have the blood thing if you want, that's fine. But don't have bats. Don't give them fangs. Don't have them hammy it up like there's no fucking tomorrow. Like, I was half expecting at one point your man to run around in his cape just pretending yeah. or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It could have been so much better than it was. Um, and cause it's, it's disappointing from last week because I thought last week like we'd both jumped a fair bit in our scores. And I was like, oh, this is great. Now we're getting into it. Mm-hmm. The eSpace trilogy, you know, well regarded for the most part. You know, people know about it. Um, but no, I just... It didn't match up. So it's going to be interesting to see if next week's story um, is going to, like, is it just, you know, a good sandwich with one poor filling? Mm-hmm. Or is it just a downhill trajectory? We'll have to, yeah. we'll have to wait and see. So next week is Warrior's Gate. Mm-hmm. So join us then, folks. And as always, please let us know your thoughts. Uh, if you agree with us, if you didn't agree with us, if you picked up something that we missed, please let us know. Yeah. Until, Until next week, everyone. though. Bye. Bye.